probably makes no difference to you, but it sounds better. A little better. Yeah. It was, uh, it's directional now. Whatever that <laughs> Okay. Sure. Like, I mean, it's pointing at me as, a point, as opposed to pointing parallel to me. Right. That's, uh, that's what, uh, <clears throat> anyway, yeah. Yeah, all right. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it means. So, this is, this is like a big deal today. Today, this is like a special podcast. It is. I'm, it's special. It's very special. They're all, wow. they're all our special children. It's true. We love them all the same, but, but we are in for an exciting episode. We are. We are. Should we talk a little bit about that now? Because um, we, we, it is part of follow-up. It is part of follow-up. Let's, uh, let's do it. Okay. So, uh, episode, today we're recording um, episode number, help me, Don, is it 56, 55? We are recording episode 55 today. And, and on episode 53, uh, entitled Raw Milk Hamsterdam, uh, we made a bit of a stir, a bit of a, bit of a buzz. Uh, out, out in the world, um, and uh, there was some critique of our uh, of that some of the things that we had said in that podcast. Uh, well, to, we'll we can, <laughs> we'll get into this later. We will. There there was a critique of some things that we, we didn't say. That's correct. Um, and and maybe some critiques of some things we did say, but <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get into that. What we decided to do. Um, when that critique rolled in was we'd invite um, the person who critiqued us, David Gumpert, to uh, join us. So for the listeners, we don't usually give like a an agenda for for our uh, podcast, but we're, we're going to do follow-up. We're going to talk about a couple of things, just Don and I, um, do our favorite topic, uh, history of food safety, and then uh, and then invite uh, David on for, for a discussion. And that's uh, that's how it's going to go. So, yes. But it's special because this is um, – we've had guests on before, uh, Mike Batts, who we, I don't think we've mentioned in 10 episodes. Uh, uh, he probably doesn't our, listen anymore. Of course he does. Doesn't. Ah. Um, so Batts was uh, was a guest twice on our show. Uh, we've had Andreas, the infamous Andreas, on for, for an episode and uh, also um, Chris Gunter. And Michelle Danilock, did we have Michelle on? Yes, we talked about it. No, we 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 did, and it that was the episode from hell because she kept getting disconnected, right? right? Oh yeah, and then we edited. That was the best editing ever. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, this uh, this will mark a, another uh, episode where we have um, where we have a guest on, and it's kind of, it's kind of exciting. This is a good. This will be good. Well, I mean, and and, I, and we should say too, it's it's kind of a special occasion because because. Mike and Chris and Michelle are all our friends in real life, uh, but but need, I have not met um, David in real life. I don't know if you have. Um, no, and I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't consider him an enemy. Maybe he considers us his enemies, but I wouldn't consider him an enemy. But he is. Um, he's not somebody that uh, I would certainly. I don't know in real life. I mean, I guess that's the simplest way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, in, in this. Uh, um, you know, today today's episode or this episode is all about, um, or 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 came about or David's trip here, and we'll talk about this later on. But was uh, I mean directly in response to something that we that we said, and in in the interest of um, of our you know I guess shared philosophy about what we're trying to do with the podcast, we want to um, increase dialogue around food safety, and and you and I 
have our own dialogue that we do every two weeks. And, um, you know, there's, there's no, there are lots of differing views and we've talked about lots of different, um, industries and, and, uh, agencies and other, um, you know, researchers that are out there in a, um, sometimes complimentary and sometimes critical way. Um, and we've had we've had others reach out to us. The uh, uh, episode fifty four, um, uh, we we talked uh, some follow up from the American Spice Trade Association. So so folks have have reached out with with more you know information. But um, this is you know this is us absolutely uh, wanting to make sure we continue this dialogue because I think we've got different viewpoints around um, the issues around raw milk. So so anyway, that's just a little te- a little teaser, as they say, in the industry for uh, for what we'll do in in a half hour or so. So, um, what other, what other kind of follow up do we have? What do you want to, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to follow up on? Well, you know, we talked in episode, uh, 53, I believe about cashew cheese and about the cashew cheese recall. And we talked about some of the stuff, uh, that I've done with cashew cheese in response to a phone call from the FDA. And, um, uh, the, my colleague, a uh, mysterious colleague from the FDA that we have not mentioned by name, um, but we could call him. Can we call him? Um, we could make up a fake name for him. Um, can we call him? Um, uh, we could call him Deep Schmicky. Fed. <laughs> deep Fed. Yes, let's call him Deep Fed. Because we have Deep South. Remember yes, our we friend do. from the South who uh, prefers to be anonymous and talks about retail food safety. Right. Right. Deep Fed. I like deep that. Fed. That was way better than the, the, the fake name I was going to come up with. Um, uh, so he, he th- this colleague called me um, in response, not to the podcast, because I don't think he listens, um, but uh, because of this uh, recall that's going on um, around cashew cheese. And he said, you know, Don, do you remember we had a discussion some time ago about an entrepreneur in New Jersey that was making cashew cheese? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do remember that. And he said, whatever happened with that? And, and I explained that um, I think <clears throat> that I had successfully talked uh, that entrepreneur out of um, the cashew cheese business because she had other, you know, items in her, in her product line, uh, that she could sell. And he was relieved to hear that. And we talked a little bit about, you know, I gave him, he didn't call for advice, but I gave him some unsolicited advice about what I would do if I was working at the FDA and about the, these kinds of products. And, you know, I made some suggestions that I was delighted to hear that he said that they were already doing in terms of trying to get a better handle on the risks uh, posed by these kinds of products, or at least the, the nature of this, these, this type of product that's in the marketplace. So anyway, very, uh, very nice uh, conversation. Very good. Very apropos uh, follow-up. Cool. Um, I've got a question for you about that, that follow-up and you and I are both members of the steering committee for the Food Safety Preventive Controls Alliance, and um, our comments uh, in 50, episode fifty-three, we didn't really um, we mentioned a little bit about the um, the alliance. But how? I mean, you and I have both seen this kind of process unfold around this preventive control rule, and do you think what gets created? Or what, what do you think the challenges are of what's created on connecting with people that make type products like cashew cheese? I mean, do you, uh, what are, what are we going to have to do to, um, to walk someone 
who's trying to explore that type of product through what hazard identification is and through a validation study? Like, do you think it's, do you think it's doable? Well, yes, I think it's doable. I think the first challenge or or step zero, if you will, is finding that person, right? Because the big, the big problem is not the people that want to do a good job and want to learn about food safety and want to comply with the regulations, but the people, but on the other hand, it's the people that I don't want to say they don't want to comply with the regulations, but they're just not aware that they're regulated or, you know, it's the entrepreneurial types. It's the small business people. It's the people that are making stuff part-time in a church kitchen, right? It's not, it's not anybody that owns physical property, for manufacturing food. It's, it's these, it's these small operators that, um, you know, and again, I've helped these people, you know, for 20 plus years, I have a, a, a warm spot in my heart for them. And most of them, I would say almost all of them that I've ever interacted with want to do the right thing, but they don't always know what the right thing is. So it will be a challenge. Um, but I, I think that the challenge of educating them, is not as great as the challenge as of, of reaching them in the very first place. Mm. And in so, fact, often, and I've had, I had some email conversations with folks over the weekend about um, entrepreneurs looking to get into the food business. And there's a lot of great resources out there. And the main thing that I try to do with these small folks is to, is to point them towards a whole lot of resources. Um, like, like for just as a, for example, some, some, a guy contacted me via email over the weekend and said he wanted to help developing a HACCP plan. Well, several email messages later, it turned out that he's making a shelf-stable pasta sauce. So he doesn't need a HACCP. He thought he needed a HACCP plan because somebody told him he needed a HACCP plan. Turns out he needs to file a process, an acid or acidified foods process with the FDA. So HACCP is not even part of the question. So, so they, there's an example of a guy who was told he needed to do a thing. He wants to do the right thing. But he doesn't know what that right thing is, right? Or, and, yeah, and, or, or, or how to or how to get it. So of course I I you know pointed him towards the, um, the Northeast Food Venture Center at Cornell University and um, and the, that great operation up there that Olga Padilla Sakur runs and said, look, you need to contact these people and they'll work with you to develop a process. So thank goodness we have people like Olga and we have folks like the the Venture Center, who can help people to do that. And then, again, another related one recently was, again, a small entrepreneur in the, wanted to get into the meat business. He really did need a HACCP plan. And so I pointed him towards some HACCP training. I pointed him towards uh, some resources that we have here in New Jersey. Um, and, and also I pointed him towards the, the Niche Meat Processors Assistance Network, which we've talked about before on the podcast as well, as a great resource for, for small meat entrepreneurs that are looking to get into the food business. So, and maybe, maybe what needs to come out just to kind of close the loop on the actual question you asked, maybe the thing that needs to happen is we need a food safety modernization act, small entrepreneurs assistance network or something, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, that's kind of where I was, where I was going with that, with the question was what, what kind of resources do we need? And, and is the current, uh, system going to, 
A, I mean, I think you bring up the, a, a great, huge point on is the system built to actually find and, and engage these individuals and how will, will what kind of um, tax, what kind of stress does it put on the inspection system to, to A, you know, first basically find these folks and then direct them towards um, good information or educational opportunities? And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a huge um, huge point. I, I had a, why I was thinking about that was I had a similar conversation. This relates a little bit to, to follow up, but I had a similar conversation with someone who, um, is trying to make a juice and, um, is trying to make a juice. He, he understands, um, he, he wants to make, uh, uh, a, a, you know, a raw product an un, unprocessed product. He wants to, um, bottle it for direct sale and he's kind of outside of the um the well he's outside the required juice hassup world um and actually the product he wants to sell it at a juice stand which is a um the you know the way that it's it's regulated here in north carolina is that that would be a, a food service restaurant but he wants he, i mean he's basically trying to process some 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 smoothies in, in by um, using a cold press and is running into not being able to figure out where he fits regulatory wise and then the regulatory world not being familiar enough with what he wants to do to to give him any sort of guidance on even where what he'll be regulated on um so and it was the the conversation. I mean, we we were able to straighten a bunch of stuff out and give him some some options, and I really urged him towards um, juice hassup as a process, uh, or not as a as a system to to look at, um, just so he knows what the risks risks are and what the hazards he might be um, might be associated with the product, so he can make a, a decision on whether that you know what he's trying to do is something that um, makes makes business sense. Um, but, uh, the, the conversation was really kind of interesting when he said, well, I know that there's this other guy in another state that does it and he's regulated, you know, uh, differently, but basically he just walked away from selling it direct to consumers and is only selling it over the internet now. And, and it was like, oh man, it just opened up, you know, when, when you mentioned sort of being able to find individuals, that's a whole other area where you've got lots of. Um, businesses that are that are food facilities that 15, 20 years ago had to have some sort of a physical address and some sort of a connection to a retail store or be an outlet, but but that's not the case. And and you know what he kind of said was, oh yeah, there was this guy who gave gave me some advice who is currently selling, um, who's doing it absolutely unregulated and is currently selling juices um, just across the internet and will send out a, you know, a batch of bottled juice, refrigerated juice. It's like, wow. Well, and you know, unpasteurized stuff, but it, I mean, there's so much, so much of that. Yeah. And I think we've talked on past episodes about the, the project that I have with um, Bill Hallman and Sandy Godwin at uh, Bill, Bill at Rutgers and Sandy at Tennessee state on, on safety of foods ordered over the internet. And, you know, that, that's a whole, you know, brand new area that's exploding. And, you know, it just occurred to me too, um, what if, what if you sold foods over the internet for Bitcoin? I mean, huh. is there, is there even, does FDA even have jurisdiction? <laughs> because it's not, <laughs> because commerce. it's, yeah. Right. Like, or, or someone could argue that it's not commerce. It's not, 
there, there's no legal tender. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I, I don't. I, FDA knows what Bitcoin is. I'm pretty sure they don't. I didn't know what Bitcoin. I didn't know what Bitcoin was until probably six months ago. Well, you were ahead of me. I probably didn't know until like two months ago. <laughs> um, but we maybe we should talk to uh, Deep Fed about that. About Bitcoin? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it raises a really good question. It's like it. It's a. Um, is that really interstate commerce? I don't know. I, I'm not a lawyer. Wow. Anyway, we'll 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 put put that one in the parking lot for yeah. for, for future follow up with uh, Deep Fed. It's awesome. So I have is a. It, I mean, is it just an? It, it's just if I was a business, and and I wanted. I mean, it's not maybe a loophole, but if I wanted to really gray up the area of what I was doing, that might be a way to do it. And then who's, I mean, who could recall it? Because it's not a, it's like you're giving it away for for some online favors. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, and, you know, if anybody that, well, so first of all, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what Bitcoin is, your your homework assignment is to find out what Bitcoin is. Um, but But, I mean, if you are familiar with Bitcoin, you know that, uh, uh, that apparently it's being used on the internet for people to buy illegal substances, yeah. right? Um, drugs and, and, and such. So I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting world that we live in now, Ben. Huh. It's incredible. So, so I had, I had a couple, I had a couple you blew more. my mind on. <laughs> That's my job. Um, so I have a couple more items of follow-up and, and one is, uh, if you're ready to leave that, no, no, let's go. Okay, so uh, and this is basically we, we talked in one of the episode recent episodes, I think it was fifty three as well, um, about um, this idea of uh, uh, if you put <laughs> it still makes me laugh if you put meat. Uh, if you try to shoplift meat by sticking it down your pants, um, uh, you know what should be done with that product uh you know should it be later uh put out for retail sale and we we referenced that yeah we re- referenced that in the raw milk hamsterdam episode and i have since uh talk about people who are friends in real life um so for for the for the record uh my brother um is on is on facebook and uh, he and i uh share a last name schaffner and his name is david uh schaffner and but he ha- he ha- he is facebook friends with somebody that I'm pretty sure he's never met, and I know for sure that I have never met, who goes by on Facebook, goes by the name of Dave Bacon Schaffner. Now, I'm pretty sure Bacon is not his real middle name, but he really <laughs> likes Bacon. And and this guy is – so I don't know if I've told you the story of when the Schaffner family came to North America, but apparently – Is it around um, Bacon? No, no, but it, there's a tie-in. Um, apparently, when the Schaffners first came from Germany to North America, uh, they they um, they landed or they they moved to Nova Scotia, which as lovely province as as, as readers of Barf Blog should know is in Canada. That's in Canada, <laughs> and uh, and so somehow my brother David has made Facebook friends with this guy Dave Bacon Schaffner, who was the guy that I learned about most of my humorous food safety stories. I learned from you guys on Barf Blog, but this one I actually learned from a Facebook post by Dave Bacon Schaffner, and of course. 
we talked about it on the podcast and I posted about the podcast on my Facebook uh, account and I'm, I'm now Facebook friends with, with Dave Bacon Schaffner. And he said, hey, did you know that happened in a town near me? I said, I think my response to him was yes. In fact, that's where I first learned about it. So um, uh, again, apologies to Dave Bacon Schaffner for not citing him as the, the, the place where I originally learned about that story about somebody uh, shoplifting meat by stuffing it down their pants. Yeah, awesome. And I, I just want to follow up a little bit on that <laughs> follow-up. Um, we'd be remiss to mention that um, Dave Bacon Schaffner also shared another story with us about the Swiss cheese pervert <laughs> being on the loose in Mayfair, Pennsylvania. And and we'll just link to that in show notes. Awesome. Um, and, and while we're talking about people that we should have given credit to, again, in the Raw Milk Hamsterdam episode, I was seriously remiss in uh, mentioning a lady who has been um, uh, a tireless advocate for raw milk safety, um, and she came to it via a very interesting way. Uh, her, she was a drinker of raw milk. Her son drank raw milk, and her, her son got food poisoning from raw milk. And she's very well known um, in, in raw milk circles, and in fact, uh, David Gumpert uh, knows of her quite well. Her name is Mary McGonigal, and I have to apologize um, to Mary for not for for referencing her but not remembering her name and so she has a a Twitter account she's at Mary McGonigal on Twitter and we'll we'll link to uh, we'll link to the email conversation that that came about because of that uh raw milk Amsterdam episode but Mary's a, again one of those folks out there that is um talking about the issue of raw milk and again I think maybe some of the raw milk what I would call raw milk advocates don't particularly like her or, or like her perspective. But I, I found her, as, as I have found s- certain folks in the raw milk community, a, a, a joy to talk to and, and a real interesting person. So we want to give a, give a shout out to Mary uh, for that. And we, the plan is, I think at some point, we we're going to have her on as a, a guest on the episode as well. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll follow up uh, um, uh, with her to, you know, as, as we venture down this road of, uh, raw milk dialogue. Um, there's one more piece of, uh, of follow-up uh, also related to raw milk Amsterdam. And we keep citing that because it's, I mean, it's in the top five of my favorite uh, show titles uh, <laughs> of all time. Uh, so one of, uh, uh, one of my colleagues um, who I know uh, here lives near, here in North Carolina um, is a, a state liaison for the food and drug administration Um is he sent a message and said, mad, crazy cultural literacy points for the wire reference. To which I said back to him, and I didn't CC you on this, Don, it's like every third episode we're making um, wire references. So he needs to listen more and not just read the um, – or listen, not just read the uh, the show notes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Because uh, – because it's, I mean, mad, really mad cultural, crazy cultural literacy points for almost all of our episodes. Oh, hey, speaking of follow-up, um, I'm I, I'm back on New Girl. Oh, good. Because I know you mentioned that you and Kristen have been listening or watching it a lot. Mm-hmm. So I've, uh, Danny and I have just finished uh, all of epi- or all of season one, um, and uh, and I'm enjoying it, you know, more than I did the first time, and I, I really like the, um, there there are some really like laugh out loud kind of moments in that in that show. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a delight, and Zoe Deschanel is just just yeah. absolutely amazing, and as are all of the, the Schmidt. The, <laughs> I mean, really deserves his own deserves his own show. He he would certainly think so. Yeah, I would. We should have him on. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me get to right busy on that. Well, you know, we actually have a, you know, there's, it's not a, it's not a very, uh, it's not very many connections before, you know, it's like what three degrees of separation with Zoe Deschanel, right? Cause I know, I know Merlin Mann who knows John Roderick, who knows Zoe Deschanel. So oh. boom, there you go. Not bad. Hey, how about, how, how about this one? Um, I met, um, Jim Marsden, who is James Marsden's <laughs> father, who I'm sure knows Zoe Deschanel because that guy's in a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have absolutely, absolutely. I've never, I've never, I've never met Jim Marsden, but uh, I would, I would like to, or James Marsden for that matter. But yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I would like to meet Jim Marsden someday. Saw, saw Jim Mor- Marsden, Jim Morrison. Did not see Jim Morrison. <laughs> saw Jim Jim Marsden at a at a cheesecake factory once in Kansas oh, City. How about that? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, so um, and then finally, finally, last bit of follow up. I think before we get David on the line is we just have to say uh, thanks to Manan Sharma uh, for now subscribing to the podcast. Um, we did have to actually mention his name to get him to subscribe, but but thanks Manan for uh, subscribing. And when we when we found that out that if you mention someone's name on Facebook, then they subscribe to the podcast. We decided that um, maybe for episode fifty six, we'll just read through the IFLP <laughs> membership directory. I think that's. You know, we have to do something when we run out of the history of IAFP, right? So, <laughs> which which is t- like today. Today's like I mean now now here's the question: Do we want to do history of IAFP or do we save it? I think I think we save it. I think we save right. it and we go right to David Gumpert. All right, well let's uh, let's do that. Hey, David. Hi. Hi, this is Don Schaffner, and uh, I'm here with Ben Chapman. Hey, David. Sorry, I'm eating. Hi. <laughs> uh, we're, we're just doing, We're just on voice. We're not on uh, video. The- no, yeah, no, no need, no need for a video. It it actually eats up the bandwidth, and the podcast is just an audio podcast anyway. Okay, okay. So let me um, try to put on putting on some headphones here, so I can hear you. All right. Okay. Great. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, you sound yep. really good. The only thing that could happen here is I have a landline that could ring, um, but I, I won't answer it. Oh, that's that's fine. Yeah. And if, I mean, if we do, like like Don said, we can always edit edit out afterwards. Okay. Okay. Well, um, so, so David, just so you're sort of clear, we're all clear on what we're going to do. We'll do just a, a quick little intro um, okay. to to the segment, and then um, we've got you know some questions that, to sort of stimulate some discussion, and um, we'll we'll try to limit um, our discussion to half hour, forty minutes, uh, based on on where things are going. Um, okay. But we'd like this to be a a dialogue. So if you've got questions for us, uh, you know, please feel free to, to jump in and, and, um, and that's about, that's about it. Any other, anything else, Don, that I'm missing? No. And I'm just trying to, I was thinking about that same thing too, Ben, that maybe if we were more organized, we would have, we would have thought this out already, but, um, I think, I mean, maybe it makes sense to uh, kind of let David go first and ask us some questions, and then we can ask him some questions. Does that does that seem like a? And then, of course, we'll just let the dialogue evolve naturally. But uh, does that does that make sense to you, David? We can do it that way. Either way is fine. Okay. Cool. All right. Um, all right. So uh, we'll go ahead. So uh, we've got uh, David Gumpert, who's joined us uh, for 
this episode as well. And um, as uh, as Don and I mentioned a little bit earlier in this episode, um, David's uh, we reached out to David to to join us today for the recording uh, based on a, a critique uh, of. Uh, our uh, episode 33, Raw Milk Amsterdam episode uh, that we had posted a, a few weeks ago. Um, so we saw David's uh, uh, comments and uh, invited him to, to sort of continue this dialogue uh, back uh, back on the podcast. And um, David, if you want to just let our listeners know a little bit about yourself and um, uh, you know do some uh, some background introduction on, on why uh, why you picked up our story and, and what it was that uh, that piqued your interest. Okay, well, I'm David Gumpert, as you said, and I am a journalist. I write a blog called thecompletepatient.com. I write uh, freelance articles uh, for a number of publications about uh, food safety and about raw milk. I've written a couple of books, uh, one called um, The Raw Milk Revolution, that was written, uh, came out in 2009. And then uh, in 2013, uh, last July, I published a book uh, called uh, um, The uh, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Food Rights. And that uh, was more um, about the, I guess, what I'd call the struggle over uh, the rights of individuals and farmers to sell food privately. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of the conflict has been over raw milk, and um, that was actually the discussion I picked up on from you guys uh, that you mentioned. Uh, you were talking about how to somehow reach out to the uh, raw milk community. And uh, how to? I, I think you were doing talking about it in the context of of uh, uh, warning or alerting the raw milk community that raw milk is uh, often unsafe or carries risks. And maybe a good way you you you, you uh, uh, suggested I could perhaps open with a question. You uh, maybe absolutely. A, yeah, one one question might be, uh, where do you guys stand on the whole issue of raw milk? I remember from your discussion, you said something that you, you, you both, or I, I don't know if you both said this, uh, or one of you said this, that, that there was some indication that, uh, of support that pe- for people having the right to uh, obtain and eat the foods that they want and uh, raw milk being included there. But um, at the same time, a fair amount of concern about uh, the risks associated with it. And um, maybe, maybe you could just uh, clarify a little bit where you do stand uh, on this uh, issue and, uh, why you, uh, and why you thought it was important to open up uh, some kind of dialogue with uh, the raw milk community. Yeah, sure. And, Don, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this uh, um, first. I, I don't you know, I, I, it's always hard to answer a question on where you stand because I think this is like a it, it, it's a continuum. Um, I guess um, and we've we've uh, Don and I have, have done this is our fifty fifth episode of this uh, podcast. We do them every couple of weeks for the last few couple of years, and uh, I, I think a common theme um, for me as we've done this podcast is that um, 
I, I don't want to stand in the way of anybody's right to eat what they want. And, uh, and in fact, as a, as an extension specialist, I'm very, very careful about how I answer questions about food safety that are, that are posed to me as advice. Should I eat this? Is this safe? Um, my philosophy is that, um, that's a, and Don's talked about this and from a processing standpoint or a company standpoint, I talk about it from a consumer standpoint, that's a risk management question. All I can do is give the person who asked that question information to make that risk management decision to, you know, to, to boil it down to, to systems approach. So, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely, um, not, not a person who, who, um, thinks we should dictate what other people eat. On the other side of things, though, I think that it, it is, uh, you know, part of my job or part of my, my interest to share information with people who are making decisions around risk. And, and hopefully, um, that information is, is based or, or the, you know, the information that I, that, that I'm trying to share hopefully contributes to, to those decisions. And, and what I do share is based on, you know, what I would, uh, uh, suggest is the best uh, available evidence. So, I mean, as, as far as, you know, um, as far as I, I go, I think I'm a, I'm a, you know, go ahead and, and drink or eat or smoke what you want, um, know, know what the risks are and, and hopefully I can make you make or, or help you make a, uh, a decision with the access that I have to, um, to some of the scientific, uh, literature. Yeah, I would say uh, that, uh, that encapsulates my view as well, Ben. And I think I've, I've said before on, on the podcast, I'm a libertarian on this particular issue. I think people should be able to eat what they want. Um, that said, we have, we, we don't. We exist in a regulatory framework today um, that, and we talked about this in the podcast. I mean, this is part of part of preparation for the the show today. David was I re-listened to that segment of uh, episode fifty three, where we we talked about these things, and one of the things that we we said was that you know it's a fact today that that raw milk is illegal in some states, which I think led us to. The description of this raw milk Amsterdam, this the, the which is a reference to uh, the the television show on HBO a number of years ago called The Wire, where uh, one of the um, um, policemen in the city basically declared a, a neutral zone for people that wanted to use drugs, with the idea that it got people in concentrated in that one particular area and it made the rest of the city safer. Now the, the analogy breaks down at some point talking about raw milk, but but I think that. The, the, issue, the issue is is that we – I think Ben and I have both said we if people want to drink raw milk, um, that they should be able to do that. But what Ben and I as food safety professionals are concerned with is how do we ensure that that milk, that raw milk has the lowest possible risk? And if people are doing an illegal behavior or, or breaking the law, breaking their state law to get raw milk – um, that produces a situation where potentially the risk goes up because, okay, so let's say I'm a consumer in New Jersey and, and I can't buy raw milk in New Jersey. So now I've got to drive to Pennsylvania and I've got to locate a raw milk supplier in Pennsylvania and I've got to transport that raw milk back to New Jersey. Now, admittedly, that may not be a long trip, but, but that you could, I think you could imagine scenarios where, um, because of the fact that it's illegal in some states, 
the risk goes up because of the behaviors that people have to engage in to obtain it. And I yeah. think that's that's part of what we were trying to get at in, in our discussion. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah. So what, are you? So I guess maybe I'm. Yeah. Maybe it, it, it's it's useful to go uh, and be more specific and and just follow up on that and just ask. You know, uh, uh, um, you both are in states where raw milk is illegal to sell. Uh, is it? Um, uh, it, it, it um, should uh, uh, or. It, now, let's just take, let's take New Jersey. New Jersey had legislation proposed last year to legalize the sale of raw milk from farms. Uh, how did you guys feel about that? Well, as I've said before, and I think maybe even on the podcast, um, from the perspective of helping farms in New Jersey stay in business, I'm in favor of that, right? I mean, I work in a college of agriculture, although I work with the food industry. I don't work directly with the agriculture industry. Um, I would like to see farms in New Jersey stay in existence. Um, there's a tremendous amount of development pressure, and so that's a um, unfortunately not a not a, a battle that I think the farms are winning. So. If there are things that farms can do, including um, pick your own, including getting into further processing. I mean, I've worked with um, a number of folks in the farm community in New Jersey, helping them set up food processing businesses to make jams and jellies or to bake pies or to make cheeses. Um, I think all of that is good, but all of those activities also carry a risk. So, so to the extent that something helps the farm community in New Jersey – I'm in favor of that. Um, obviously, there's a, another issue with raw milk, though, is that is that 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 is a that is a specific thing that we would have to change the law in order to be able to to make that particular piece happen. Right. So you're saying you favored the New Jersey legislation? Uh, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. What I, what I said was I favored things that help farmers. I, I don't have an opinion on the New Jersey leg legislation because I don't I haven't studied it and I don't really know what it entailed. I, I can tell you for sure some of my food microbiology colleagues uh, at Rutgers were um, what's the right adjective were uh, let's say quite opposed to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll jump in on this. I think. And we've had lots. Don and I have had lots of discussions on this in the past. I don't. I don't like a system where we've created a uh, essentially a black marketed product that that could be even could be riskier um, because of that. And I think. I mean, there. Are, uh, I, I don't have the uh, the exact uh, numbers in front of me, but I think it's twenty plus states that that do allow for the sale of this and have some sort of regulatory framework around it to look to reduce risk. And I like that system. I mean, that's exactly what, what, what we had said in, um, in episode 53. And we said, I've, I've mentioned before that by making it illegal in certain States, um, you, you take some of the, the risk reduction expertise out of the mix, because there's no way that someone in North Carolina could go to an extension agent in, you know, because it's an illegal product and say, look, you know, I'm trying to sell this milk. Um, I want to know how to do this as safely as possible. Can you give me some advice on, on best practices? And I don't, I mean, truthfully, I don't know whether that question would come up or not, but I know that we are out of the mix. I know that, that, that we have expertise and we have, um, 
you know, I- individuals who, um, who know the literature that, that, that may be able to help someone who's trying to get into that business. And so, you know, I, I, I the same with, with Don, I think when you get into questions of, are you in favor of this legislation or not? I mean, there, who knows what else was, is involved in, in the legislation. I think overall, I, I like a system where people can, can get what they, what they want to drink and that there is a, a way to help those producers reduce risk as well as let consumers know that there is a risk associated with it. I mean, there's a risk associated with, 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 with every food, um, that we consume. This one has a, a different type of metric, uh, for, for what we've seen, um, illness wise. And it's, if you look at it on its own, that that's, I think the, at the heart of the, the situation, I think Don and I probably fall, you know, as, as Don alluded to on the, the paradox or the continuum of, People that um, that are really liberal towards raw milk consumption in the food safety world, we're probably way, way, way on the left side compared to many of our colleagues, and and it's more of a, a philosophical issue. But I think, I mean, just the realistic, practical situation is um, making or having it be illegal in certain states probably increases the risk. Making it illegal increases the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, think because you're creating more of a black market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a black market is unregulated. Right. So right. so you could have nefarious actors doing all kinds of things um, yeah. in, in that black market. I guess. Yeah, I was just uh, trying to get a sense of uh, if there is some uh, situation in I mean, we have 50 states and we have 50 different sets of regulations. And you know, you talk about you talked about. Um, yeah, roughly the way it breaks down, I think it's uh, uh, about uh, 28 or 30 states allow, uh, uh, or excuse me, about yeah, about 28, 30 states allow sale of raw milk, and um, uh, another 20 don't allow it. Uh, although among those 20, you have uh, herd shares or cow shares allowed in most of those places. Um, you don't, I believe, in New Jersey. And um, I'm not sure about North Carolina. Yeah, I don't. You, I don't believe so. Okay, so you don't there, but you do in places like, let's say, Colorado, um, and um, a number of other states where I think Virginia, there there are co- uh, herd share arrangements. Um, so I guess what I was just trying to get at is, uh, uh, you know, are there any of those? And then there, I think there are about ten states that allow retail sales of raw milk. Um, so are there any of those situations that, that you, you kind of say think could be a model perhaps for other places? Um, you have Maryland right now uh, considering legislation. They, they don't allow the sale. They're considering uh, legislation that would allow herd shares. Um, you have Wisconsin considering legislation that will allow sale from the farm. Are, are there any of those models that um, you have California that allows Retail sales. You have Connecticut allows retail sales. Maine allows retail sales. Um, any of those models that stand out to you as, uh, as, as you know, uh, perhaps potential national models, models for New Jersey, North Carolina, states that don't allow any uh, uh, sale of raw milk and, and are encouraging the kind of black market that you are concerned about. 
Oh, I'm, I'm not sure that we will ever have a national model. Again, I'm not a, an expert on regulation or on even, you know, on milk regulation or anything. So I don't know whether we'll ever have a national model. I think that one of the great things, well, one of the the, the great things and the annoying things about living in a country like the United States is we have this ability for states to, you know, move the ball different directions. I mean, we're seeing this with liberalization of marijuana laws that, that Ben alluded to earlier. We're seeing that in, in some states uh, in the United States right now. We're seeing it with respect to raw milk uh, regulation. I think it, it's an interesting – it's a very interesting world that we live in where this is now a possibility. And – I think time will tell what happens in those states. Um, we have the ability to do, and maybe it's not a true scientific experiment, but, but states have the ability to to move the ball in in different directions. I mean, we've seen we've seen this in California with Proposition sixty five, where Proposition sixty five requires folks in California to label stuff for all kinds of you know all kinds of stuff for uh, because of the toxic effects. When I got get off an airplane. Uh, in California, I know one of the things that's going to greet me on the jetway is a warning that inhaling uh, airplane fumes, you know, uh, diesel fumes or, or, or jet fuel fumes, I guess, to be more more correct, um, can cause cancer. So I think that's an example, maybe, of a failed experiment. Um, and and we'll and we'll see we'll see what happens. Um, like I said, it's it's an interesting time. But I, but again, David, I'm not I'm not educated enough on the specifics of what's in all of those different pieces of state regulation to begin to offer an opinion. And what maybe what concerns me a little bit is, okay, so let's say that happens and now we have all these different regulatory models in play. I'm concerned that we don't have a good enough public health infrastructure to see, okay, let's say, for example, um, that the Maryland model is a better model than the Wisconsin model. Well, if those two states have different state public health infrastructures, we're not going to be able to see whether illnesses from raw milk go up or go down in those two states with respect to these different regulatory models. So even even if we have different models, I'm not sure that we know enough to say, well, this is a successful model or this is a good model because it, re- it, it reduces illness or this, or this has an uh, equivocal effect or this raises the probability of illness. So I, I just don't know if we'll ever really truly know in a scientific way whether any of those models are better or worse. Yeah, and, and, and the only thing that I'd add to that, and this uh, I guess becomes a question for you, David, is – what elements do you think work or matter of those you know those different types of systems and and I say that as cow shares um, from a I think the, the the type of regulation runs the gambit from um, you, a, a cow share uh, uh, is allowed state with with no requirements for for testing. Or no requirements for um, uh, for inspection to a uh, you know looking at Washington State as as a state that allows retail allows cow shares um, has to have some licensing requires testing requires uh, inspection um, warning labels I mean I think there's lots of different elements in each of those it's really hard to look at one I mean each state it's hard to compare them so what so the question is what are the elements that you think matter 
um, in, in you know in 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 the world uh, that you're a lot closer to than than we are uh, of the the producers that are selling it. Well, it's um, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I I know exactly which elements matter most. Uh, I, because what happens in most of these places is it becomes a matter of what will be accepted or what will be allowed. Uh, just uh, as, as a couple of examples, Michigan and um, Ohio both were states that until uh, just a few years ago didn't allow any kind of sales of raw milk. Uh, in, in both those places, there were legal actions uh, that basically uh, led to the allowing of uh, herd shares. And from uh, in, in, in Ohio, there was a, a suit filed uh, in uh, 2006, I think it was, by a farmer who against the Ohio Department of Agriculture, and a judge ruled in, in favor of the farmer. And then uh, the state didn't, and, and that that farmer was trying to do a herd share, and basically the the judge said it was uh, that, that was okay, that, and um, uh, and the state didn't challenge it. So now they have herd shares in Ohio, and from all, and and and, and in Michigan around the same time, there was a big uh, to do when the state tried to uh, interfere with a herd share, and um, eventually the state attorney general. Uh, decreed that their their herd share should be allowed, and the uh, state has done it in both those places. From everything I hear, it's worked well. And um, but it, it, it now um, should people be able uh, to to buy uh, beyond uh, being a member of a herd share? Should they be able to go to a farm and simply buy raw milk without being a member of a herd share? Um, should there be circumstances under which? Uh, the uh, uh, raw milk should be made available on a retail basis. Um, and, uh, it, it, I mean, you have, then you have like New Hampshire, which um, allows uh, sale from the farm. And then under certain, uh, for certain farms that have uh, certain facilities, they can actually sell uh, retail. And, and all those places, it's worked out uh, well from what I understand. There haven't been any uh, public health issues that I'm aware of. No illnesses that I'm aware of, um, and uh, so. But I, I think um, it's always kind of a, a, a matter of just you know how much will be allowed, and and you're always kind of pushing against this resistance. Uh, people who who want raw milk are kind of pushing against this resistance. Uh, so um, uh, you know, I think there are a number of models that that seem to, or kinds of models that seem to work. I mean, it seems. I mean, California is selling a ton of you know. Raw, uh, raw milk, the, the two or three dairies that are selling raw milk um, are making a lot of it available. It's available pretty much any health food store you, you go to, you can buy it. And they seem to be doing you know pretty well from a safety point of view the last few years. Well, let's, um, and yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because I guess that's, you know, um, what, what you mentioned there was it works well because people can sell it. And let me, let me recategorize my question to it take let's take regulation entirely out of this let's let's assume that that it's that that selling the product is is legal in states um and you can sell it at retail 
or we take the example of Washington State or, or South Carolina where, where that happens. What makes for a good raw milk producer from a food safety standpoint? What I mean, ultimately, there there have got to be a continuum of good to to not so good producers. What what are the best practices? What are the things that 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 producer, if they're running a cow share or selling at retail, what do they what do they need to be doing? That's a good that's a good question, and that that really raises. I'm not a, I'm not a uh, a, a um, uh, agriculture expert or a, a um, microbiologist or a, um, even I, I, I wouldn't call myself a food safety expert either or public health expert. I, I but I, I I follow what's going on and I know that there is a, a, a pretty significant effort going on uh, launched out of California, which you may be aware of, called the Raw Milk Institute, and uh, it's a, an organization established to set safety standards for farmers and they are um, they have some pretty strict standards that farmers have to meet in order to become uh, uh, certified I guess for by the organization and I think they have five or six dairies that have been certified mostly in the West although I understand some are are on on, are um, going to be considered are being considered uh, they're from the East uh, so they are trying to establish these, uh, these standards. I mean, it in- includes um, uh, it matters uh, um, on, in terms of uh, you know sanitation, in terms of the uh, uh, animal uh, feeding and, and grazing and um, milking practices, and um, there are a whole there are a whole list of of, of, of issues and. Uh, criteria that they consider and um, that they uh, encourage dairy farmers to adopt. So I I think this is a real positive kind of thing. And as as you suggest, in the absence of of regulation, this is kind of self-regulation. And uh, these uh, farms, uh, the the dairy owners that are doing this are real enthusiastic about it. They've had very good results uh, in terms of, first of all, not having had any illnesses. But beyond that, they, they monitor their, uh, the, the, the bacteria readings um, in the milk, and, the, uh, and these are the good bacteria or, or, or the harmless bacteria that are um, present in whole milk. And they, they monitor these on a regular basis. They have uh, a regular testing, and so they can um, keep track of it. And they, they, they post these results so that customers... Uh, our potential customers can uh, see what's going on, what the trends have been. And I think that's really what people want to know is uh, uh, they, they want to know what are the criteria they should be considering. And then once and then uh, they want to be able to evaluate, you know, uh, uh, have a farmer uh, post information about how well they are meeting the key criteria. But, but David, from from a scientific perspective, how do you set those criteria and know that they're they're meaningful and they're not just some sort of feel good criteria? In other words, what's the what's the research base that the Raw Milk Institute is using to develop these standards? Well, they have um, uh, a uh, veterinarian, a prominent veterinarian from UC Davis, who's involved in helping them set the, these standards. I know they've consulted with. Uh, number of microbiologists and um, food safety people um you know it's it's uh, and that kind of gets to the 
maybe the question that prompted this discussion in the first place, uh, you know, to what extent are, uh, sh uh, should or does the public health community help with that information? Uh, to, uh, you know, I, I, I don't pretend to have it, and I don't think Mark McAfee, who's, who launched it, uh, the head of Organic Pastures Dairy Company, I don't think he pretends to have it all either. Um, and I think uh, one of the things he's really uh, promoting is uh, collaboration or discussion uh, with the food safety community. Uh, unfortunately, the, m many in the food safety community don't want to have that discussion. And um, maybe you can explain to me why, because you're close to your, your Don, you're head of the, uh, you're president of the IAFP, International Association of Food Protection, is that it? And um, what is the, you know, what is the resistance or what, or, or, you know, or what is, what, sh what can and should be done to encourage more of this um, discussion and cooperation uh, between the food safety community and uh, organizations like uh, the Raw Milk Institute? Well, David, I think honestly, a lot of it is tone. Um, having you on the podcast here today, you're a delight to talk to and you're reasonable and articulate. Um, if I look at the blog post that um, uh, prompted us to reach out to you, um, it's it's full of hyperbole and it's it has it's it's inflammatory and quite frankly it's irritating <laughs> to to read to read what you wrote and to have been on the 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 podcast with ben i think you've i think you've mischaracterized our opinions so i, I did or people on, the, me, on, on my blog well we, <laughs> we we can talk about both but, okay, that's but right. and, I, and i think and i and you know let me let me let me just complete my thought and i'll let you yeah. react here i think that i and i have seen i have seen the same vitriol and hyperbole on the part of folks in the food safety community against raw milk. And so as long as, as people are, are, are winding each other up, we're never going to get anywhere. Right? So the, the food safety community insists that raw milk be illegal and the raw milk people insist that the food safety people don't recognize the benefits. And it just turns into a shouting match instead of people sitting down and talking together. So, so, I mean, honestly, that's part of the problem. And, and I, I would say that again, having been part of those, trying to be the voice of of reason and moderation within the food safety community, as well as listen to some of the folks <laughs> on your blog uh, in the comments spouting all kinds of nonsense. Um, you know, it's just, it just makes me want to just go and do something else. <laughs> yeah. And just to not, not to pile onto that comment, but, but David, you mentioned Mark McAfee, his comment I mean, it, this is a funny way to reach out to food scientists or food microbiologists. And I quote from his comment, thank you for writing about damn ignorant PhDs. <laughs> um, again, nobody wants to talk about the successes. Um, sick of this fake world of false experts and denial of true market successes. And I guess the, that's, a, that's a really funny way to reach out to people <laughs> in, my, in my case. Yeah, um, he, well, he writes a lot of things. I think he wrote... A, a, a follow-up uh, after that that was more um, more to the point of, of um, trying to work out uh, better communications. But um, uh, I think you have people say now. Let me, let me maybe I, I, I ask the question a little differently, or or come back at you. You know, if if the if the, um, what what are you looking for in terms of tone? 
Uh, and, and to what extent is kind of the tone of the discussion uh, the driving factor here? Um, or are there are there other are there other things that uh, uh, going on? I mean, are, are you are you suggesting you, you you know Mark has is, is full of hyperbole and you can't really work with with someone like him? No, I'm just saying that when 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 you write a post like you did, um, it it raises my hackles, and <laughs> I'm the last guy in the world whose hackles you want to raise on this because I'm the trying to be the voice of reason talking to my food safety colleagues. You know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, and you did, I have to say, the, the, the follow-up piece that you wrote, the next blog post that you wrote, um, where you where you linked to uh, a podcast that um, uh, Michelle J. Russell was on. I mean, I, I think that, and, and actually, again, we should point our readers towards that, the uh, Real Food, Real Talk uh, uh, podcast number eight. Uh, they did a, a really nice job of interviewing a, a, bun- a bunch of folks, um, uh, including Michelle J. Russell, uh, including Bill Marler. Um, and, and, and actually what I found most fascinating in that whole blog post, that whole uh, podcast rather, was uh, was Vernon Hirschberger's story about um, getting shut down by uh, the state of Wisconsin. I mean I thought that was a really interesting story. So, so I mean clearly – you know there are folks out there, uh, perhaps like Michelle J. Russell, Michelle J. Russell, perhaps like Ben and I, that that are be willing to to, to work with you. But I mean, you know, just to, to to call out a couple of a couple of things from uh, from your original blog post. Um, I mean, you said uh, you know. Uh, Kudos to the, this is quoting me now from the uh, from the podcast. Kudos to the people in Minnesota who carried out that study. It's a fascinating piece of work," said Schaffner, who is taken by its confirmation to him of the huge risk associated with drinking raw milk. Well, I re-listened to that, David. I never said there was a huge risk drinking raw milk. Um, I, the reason why I, I like that study is that it was somebody doing something. And publishing it in a scientific journal to raise the discussion. I mean, I think I think Ben and I had discussions about some of the problems with the study, the lack of a denominator in many cases, making it difficult to try to, to figure out exactly what it was they were measuring. But at least at least they're doing something. Um, you know, um, and then you 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 characterize uh, you char- you call this uh, you characterize uh, our discussion as as talking about people who have this crazy habit of drinking raw milk. Well, Ben and I never called it a crazy habit. So you're you're kind of you're kind of putting words in our mouth. Now, admittedly, you're listening to the the podcast with your bias, and you're hearing it through your ears and your filters. But you know. I, I think some of the, the way that you represented I hope I hope people that read what you wrote went and listened to what we said because I think what we said was not what you wrote or at least the tone wasn't the same as what you wrote. Well, um, I mean, I guess I, maybe where I was I was starting from was that Minnesota study, which um, I think anyone who knows any anything about the raw milk community and who has contact with people who are drinking raw milk. Uh, knows that 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 study was um, I don't know quite how to characterize it, but uh, it, it was it was in, it, it really had um, uh, negative intentions just to begin with because uh, it was it was it was trying to come out with a, a large number of people getting sick from raw milk and and anyone who, like I said anyone who's uh, uh, knows people who drink raw milk knows that. You don't have 17% of people drinking raw milk getting sick, um, 
it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's got to be, you know, uh, way south of that. Uh, I don't know if it's 1% or, or 5.5 or 0.11, or, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, that was so out of proportion. Uh, it, it was so as to be uh, uh, laughable. And so you're, you're starting with a study that anyone who knows anything about um, uh, raw milk is, is finding laughable. And you're kind of giving them credence. And well, well, let me so. let me let me ask you a question about that. How do you come up with that percentage? Oh, I don't have a percentage. I'm well, just no, saying but you did. You just said, "Well, it's less than that." Seventeen. I mean, well, let me so ask what, you this: Do you know any? Do you know people who drink raw milk? I do. Okay. How, how many of them have gotten sick? Well, the problem is I don't know everyone that drinks raw milk. Okay. So that's the that's what that the paper was all about. It's estimating this world. I mean, and I assume that you don't know everybody who drinks raw milk. No, but I've met a good number of people. I've met uh, probably you know a couple hundred people in Minnesota who drink who who drink raw milk regularly. But and, uh, I mean, how, what's the estimate of raw milk drinkers in the U.S.? I mean, it's, uh, well, it's the, in the Department of Department of uh, of uh, USDA and. Uh, uh, CDC did a, I think it was, I forget which one or both of them together did that, uh, that study of, of food ha- eating habits back in 2007 that found uh, three, roughly between two and a half and three and a half percent in the, in a dozen states. So there's a, yeah. a, estimates of up to 10 million, nine, 10 million people drinking raw milk. Exactly. And you've talked to a couple hundred of them in Minnesota. And I think that's the, the problem with phrasing it as, do I know somebody who's, who's had, who's consumed raw milk or consumes it regularly and have they got, have they been sick? I mean, this is, it's an exercise in, in statistics, not anecdotes. And the, the, the issue is, and, and I mean, it, it comes back to exactly what, what you had mentioned before on the um, raw milk Institute standards. Well, I, I don't know. I don't even have, I don't, no one really knows. I, I would hazard a guess on how many producers there are of raw milk that are selling them both legally, selling it both legally and illegally across the U.S. And if we know that four of them are following these standards, and that's all we've got on, on, on the website, then there's a lot more that aren't. And realistically, there are many that are probably doing a very good job in reducing risk. But you're asking a question here, and I, I mean, kudos to to Minnesota and I'll echo the, the same comment that we made in, in the last um, podcast is at least they tried to count with some numbers and, and make uh, uh, w- there are assumptions in those, in those numbers. Absolutely. But they tried to make some sort of an estimation that wasn't based on anecdotes. And that's the, that, that if we're going to start anywhere in, in science, we're going to have to look at some real, some real data. So, so when you, when you mentioned, well, it's not 17% and it's less, you're, you're not approaching that in a scientific way. And maybe that's, maybe that's the, the, the issue of where this all breaks down, um, on being able to, to engage, um, you know, the scientific community on, on best practices is, is that it, it does take data for us to, to really focus on what, what risks are and how to reduce them. Those assumptions in that study were, totally unrealistic, uh, beginning with the first assumption that all of the people who drank raw milk uh, and got sick uh, got sick because they drank raw milk. That was the first assumption. Then there were um, 
uh, assumptions that flowed out from that. Now you have those uh, 300 to 500 people, uh, depending on uh, how they, uh, whether they interviewed them or not, who they had as um, uh, classified now as uh, having gotten sick from raw milk. And now you say, well, you have to assume also that uh, a percentage, some significant percentage uh, of, of the people who um, got, uh, other people got sick who um, uh, we don't even uh, know about. In other words, the unreported. So now you're multiplying, you're using, now you have a, a basis to multiply it that's totally unrealistic. And you're using other data that is, um, I don't know if anyone, no one's really tested out whether it's realistic or not. Uh, multipliers, unreporting, or lower, uh, un, uh, multipliers based on underreporting that they're multiplying from. And you're going from there, and all of a sudden you've got some pretty big numbers. It gets back to what um, uh, the, the, the whole uh, basis uh, or an estimate of food safety or foodborne illness in the U.S. Uh, we say that the US, CDC says there are 48 million uh, illnesses from um, foodborne illness each year. And uh, they do that only on the basis of all these multipliers and underreporting and so on and so forth. And um, there's uh, a good argument that can be made that th th those numbers are highly inflated. Well, but, but David, your, your argument then is with the field of epidemiology. I mean, this, there's no – the CDC needs to come up with those estimates, right? Because we, we need to have an understand of what, understanding of what the burden of foodborne disease is in this country. And those estimates are the only way to do that based on the current available technology and the science. So that's – I mean, yeah, we're aware that those are estimates and anybody – and believe me, I'm the first one to critique somebody who, who says that there's that many illnesses and doesn't use the word estimates in front of it because it is, it is an estimate. But – that's that's the it's like democracy it's a lousy system it's just the best one that we have that's the best system we have for doing epidemiology and estimating those things if you have a better approach i'm sure the cdc would be had glad, glad to hear it and if you again if you have a problem with that minnesota study i would say why not work with the raw milk drinking community to come up with your own estimate and as ben said you're not going to get very far in a discussion with scientists by, by citing anecdote. What will move us, especially guys like me who are you know, quantitatively biased or quantitatively oriented, is go and collect your own data with your own population and make it as scientific as possible and, and tell us what your methods are and then get it published in a peer-reviewed journal and then, and then we'll sing your praises. <laughs> I mean, it's, you, know, it, it, you do the best you can with the data that you have and, and you try to make, to make some sense out of it. Well, but, for the record, just for the mm -hmm. record, those assumptions that we talked about uh, that were the same kinds of assumptions that are used to come up with the uh, national 48 million illnesses each year and that were used in Minnesota. It's the first time that I'm aware of. In fact, I asked the CDC when else they have used these kinds of assumptions in uh, evaluating any other food, and they didn't have an answer. That, that, that This is the uh, raw milk is the only time those kinds of assumptions have been used in any kind of study that the CDC has been involved with uh, that I'm aware of, unless you know of something else. So the question is, you know, why is that study being used? Why are those kinds of assumptions being used uh, for raw milk, which is a pretty sm small 
uh, item in terms of consumption in the U.S. Um, and as a, as a, I mean, by all accounts, in terms of uh, you know, out of the reported illnesses, uh, the percentage that is coming from raw milk is is um, on the is, is very is on the order of one half of one percent. Um, why why was that food picked out to have that kind of study done? Uh, be the first food to have those kinds of assumptions applied. I, do, you have, I, do you have an answer for that? I, I, I don't know the intention of why the public health folks in Minnesota did a study. No, of course not. Well, I can never a, it know. It was CDC-sponsored. Well, I have to go. CDC to, paid for it, didn't they? Mm, we have to go back and look at that because I, I it think – It says the, at the end of the st- study yeah, what is, that it was a CDC-sponsored what, study. What is, what's the exact wording at the end of the study though? I don't have the webpage up in front of me, but do you have the exact wording? I can find it. Yeah, because because again, I think you're you you're you're conflating sponsorship with um, with endorsement, and I mean, again, you have to look at who the authors are. I think that CDC may have contributed the data to it. So, I mean, the the you have to read that. I think they contributed the money. To well, the I, I, I again, I don't have that 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 in front of me, but if, but. I'd very much like to see the exact wording at the end of that document because I think you're, I think you're you're mischaracterizing it. Yeah, and I'll I've got the document here. It says this work was supported in part through cooperative agreements, and it lists the you know the numbers, and we'll link to this in the show notes with the CDC uh, as part of the Environmental Health Specialist Network and Emerging Infection Program Foodborne Disease Active Surveillance Network. So I don't know. I mean, we'll. we'll this is for us for follow up, David. We'll we'll uh, see if we can dig out any information on what those cooperative agreements are. Um, I, well, uh, but I but I want to. It comes back to something that that you mentioned that this is the first type of food that's been given this type of treatment. Um, I mean, yes and no. The estimates uh, for foodborne illness uh, illnesses as well as outbreaks are characterized annually. Um, in in the food net reporting, um, and uh, sorry, I shouldn't say that's the the actual um, uh, numbers, and and those are not sort of extrapolated to to estimates, but are definitely characterized um, in in press release and, and reports on uh, percentages of foods that are linked to uh, to illnesses. So, I mean, fresh produce a few years ago, uh, an industry that I work with quite a bit um, w- was. Um, characterized as you know the number one source of foodborne illness in the U.S. So it, I, I think what you're what you're talking about there. Who knows what the um, you know what what the reasons are? And, and actually, it's a question for for the folks at the uh, Minnesota De- Public, Department of Health on on why they might have uh, uh, followed this path on the, on the research. Um, but it's it's not fair to say that this is the only time we've estimated the source of. Uh, of foodborne illness, and you know, like I said, FoodNet FoodNet reports the actual illnesses with um, uh, comments on on estimates every year. And one of the things too that CDC is working on, uh, in conjunction with folks at FDA and USDA, is this whole issue of attribution. And and I can tell you that it's not an easy job. Um, and they have published papers trying to figure out. 
okay, so where is most of our salmonellosis coming from? Where is most of our campylobacteriosis coming from? And it's a, it's not an easy job. And of course, they're going to get stuff wrong. Um, but if we, if I waited until I, everything was perfect before I published a scientific paper, you know, I'd never publish anything. I, I wait until it's good enough that I think it will pass through peer review and that I'm proud to have my name associated with it. But if I, if I worried about making everything completely perfect, like I said, I'd never publish anything. So I think you're, I think you're being a little bit hard on the folks at CDC in Minnesota. Okay. Um, I, I, like I say, uh, the, the, um, the, those uh, estimates um, have never been used, to my understanding, in this kind of a study. In other words, they've never taken a chicken, say, and said, okay, um, we have uh, a 1,000 reported illnesses in Ohio. And um, oh, we, actually, we, don't, we have a 1,000 people who got sick who ate chicken. Um, and uh, so we're assuming that even though... Uh, the official data shows only 40 people got sick, uh, that um, now we have a, a, a thousand people who got Campylobacter who ate chicken along with other foods. We're assuming that a thousand, they, those thousand people all got sick from the chicken and allowing for underreporting. Uh, now uh, we multiply that by uh, uh, this much and uh, extrapolate this much. And now we've all of a sudden we've got uh, uh, 60,000 people got sick from chicken in, in, in Ohio. I don't think that study has been done. Um, the, uh, so anyway, that's, um, but just even to go back to the, uh, the, the foodborne illness, the 48 million, um, I think it's, if you go and look at those, uh, that data, uh, they don't even, they, they don't associate it with particular foods. Uh, they, um, in fact, I think something like 35 or uh, or, or 38 million out of the 48 million are from unknown, um, either viruses and or pathogens. Yeah, you're even. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about two two different studies. Both, I know. Both well, by I'm talking, but I'm talking right. about the, the I'm talking about the uh, assumption or the kinds of assumptions that underlay them. And uh, uh, sure, yeah. sure, we 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 all we all make assumptions to get through our day. I mean, that, that's a necessary part of life and that's a necessary part <laughs> of doing science. Right. And they just, uh, in this case, the first such study happened to be about raw milk. <laughs> well, again, you know, I, I have no idea what the intention of the authors of that oh, study was. On. You know what the intentions of the authors were? Do I? To do good science and publish it? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I uh, what do you think their intention? I mean, was? The, the FDA. I mean, because they they have they've they've made uh, uh, raw milk and raw milk cheese a target. Uh, the FDA uh, a year ago did a risk assessment of raw milk cheese, and they found that the soft raw milk cheeses are 150 times more dangerous than pasteurized raw milk cheeses. Yeah, but you're, you're familiar I, with that study? I, yeah, absolutely. And and I, I, but I, let me let me argue with one one point okay. point there that FDA has may have made that a target but the, you know what else they've also made a target sprouts um leafy greens tomatoes um usda has made chicken a target i mean raw milk is not the only target i mean as as much as um as much as it's as we're all very special there are lots and lots of people that get sick from lots and lots of foods and it's not just all about raw milk i mean fda spends a lot of money 
And a lot of people spend a lot of their time focusing on foodborne illnesses in, in other areas. So I, I don't, I really don't think it's fair to, um, uh, to say that that there's a special target on the back of of raw milk in the regulatory world. There may be a special target on the raw, on the back of raw milk in some of our colleagues' minds around food safety, um, and there's there's dogma behind that on sort of the history of food microbiology. But but I don't. I mean, I just I can't. It, the 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 amount of work that it that goes into lots and lots of other foods and keeping those other foods safe and focusing on the burden from those foods is not uh, it, it's not um it, it's not any really any different and uh, to make your to to you know your point on the consumption of raw milk well you know 3% of the people in in the U.S., consuming raw milk regularly is 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 not insignificant. Um, the consumption of raw oysters is probably just a little bit greater than that on the mm-hmm. on the food side of things. So, I mean, there are lots of foods that that we know about that carry risks that not a lot of people eat, but are important from a public health standpoint. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, I guess I mean just to maybe continue the discussion. Kind of the, the where, where we were kind of going originally, which which is um, you know how do we maybe get more cooperation and how do we uh, uh, improve uh, safety and, and 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 develop standards that are, that maybe every everyone feels comfortable with uh, that, that I think that will take more uh, cooperation from kind of your community and the um, those of uh, those of us who uh, you know. Are favor or want to drink raw milk or, 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 or consume raw dairy products, raw cheese. And um, I think there, there definitely isn't the same kind of attitude toward, let's say, you, you talked about oysters uh, or um, sprouts. Uh, there, there isn't the same kind of um, attitude uh, uh, toward improving safety for raw milk as it is, as there is for. Uh, Sprouts or oysters or any or you know take your food, but um, and I think part of that stems from uh, an uh, attitude in the um, uh, food safety community and public health community that uh, raw milk is inherently unsafe and can't be produced safely. Well, I, people have said, David, people have said the same thing about sprouts. People have said the same thing about oysters. You you know, need to talk to more oystermen and more sprouters because they feel similarly persecuted. And, and I'd add uh, unpasteurized uh, cider yep. past, yeah, on, into that list. And, and I've, I mean, the, on this podcast and things that I've written, I've absolutely said that about sprouts, and Don, Don and I have different differing views on uh, on the sprout industry when it comes to um, when it comes to that. So I I think that there's no you know your your comments are, are well taken, David. There is something there there's something special about raw milk for some you know historical reason, probably more than those other foods, but it's not. Um, something special, I, I think, in the in the regulatory world. I think it's and, and that that ongoing conflict between those who who choose to drink raw milk and those who um, who work in food microbiology um, is probably getting you know worse. I mean, it's now I've followed this this uh, dialogue for the last 
10 or 12 years. And it's, it seems to be much more, um, combative. Yeah. Uh, and because and, it's multi-issues and let me, and let me, and let me come back and, and, and mention oh, something yeah, that's ahead. related to that, David. And it, that actually is, is kind of aids your side in this whole debate. And one of the things that I did uh, in preparation for this podcast was I, I used uh, Google advanced search to go into uh, look to search the complete patient for every time you mention raw milk. And one of the things that hit for me um, was a, a workshop and this gets back to IAFP. This was a workshop that IAFP organized in, I think it was 2008 on the issues of raw milk and, and what it, what, what happened at this workshop, uh, IAFP arranged this as they've done a number of times. And this was before my time on the board. So I have no, no involvement in this except as a member of the association. Um, and then a few days prior to the workshop, the FDA speakers pulled out. Now, to me, that says that those are people and, you know, they have their, everybody has their reasons, right? They, they have their reasons. Um, and, and, and certainly again, I don't know the details and I've got a lot of good friends that work at the FDA, just like I have good friends that, um, are sprouters or that, uh, that, that know people in the oyster community. But the, the issue is, is that when you pull out of a workshop at the last minute that's been organized around raw milk, um, that leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. And I think mm-hmm. that, that shame on the FDA for, for doing that again. And they, I'm sure they have their reasons. There may be legal reasons why they couldn't. Uh, I think that was part of, part of my recollection. My, my recollection is part of the problem was that, there was existing uh, pending lawsuits that they couldn't they couldn't comment on, but but you know again that to me that's a, not a classy move. If, if part of and again this thanks to you, David, for being on the call today, because you reached out to us and and you know and good for us for having you on the podcast because unless we unless we just stop shouting at each other unless we actually get together in the same virtual space at least and talk about it, we're never going to make any progress. So, so and I, I, think, I think the FDA ultimately needs to come to the table at some point. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would also just um, – I was surprised to hear you say that you think that the, the, the tone of the, of the debate or discussion overall has gotten more negative or gotten worse – because I, I actually think the opposite. I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think I said that. Okay. No, I said that. I, I did. I said that. No, I'll, I'll back that up. Okay. I mean, I, I, mean, I guess that, uh, I think uh, it's gotten more combative. Has got gotten more combative? See, I, if, um, looking at the comments on my blog, maybe maybe um, it doesn't seem that way because some of the comments still seem combative. But the tone on my blog is definitely more uh, open and um, and more. Um, I don't know. I don't say compromising, uh, uh, but it's certainly uh, more open-minded. People are, are listening to each other's comments more than uh, than they were. At least that's my judgment. And um, I didn't go and do the advanced uh, search that you did, but um, uh, I think if you looked in 2008, there when I wrote that post about what happened at the IAFP meeting when the FDA pulled out, um, I was probably um, uh, more uh, critical and the comments following it were probably more um, critical than they maybe would be today. I'm not even sure that would happen uh, today. I think the, uh, the FDA would probably probably be a little more careful and either they wouldn't uh, do you know, either set it up to begin with, or if yeah. they did, they would be probably more committed to, to doing it. Uh, <coughs> uh, that's my hope. Anyway, I like to think that even the FDA has become, um, uh, uh, perhaps a little more um, 
open, but uh, certainly other others in the um, uh, uh, public health community seem to me to be more open. I think I wrote that art, that column about Michelle J. Russell, and um, but it, 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 she was indicative of kind of that uh, I, what I saw as a an important change in tone. And uh, but that whole, as you said, that whole uh, program uh, where where five or six people were interviewed on both sides, it was it was that included Mark McAfee as well. Everyone was pretty respectful, I thought. (laughs) Um, uh, There was uh, there wasn't a lot of name calling. There 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 was uh, uh, you know it was it was pretty much uh, sticking to the issues. And um, uh, I, I like to think that's more of what's happening. Uh, from what I hear about the debate over the legislation in Maryland, um, it's also a, a more serious discussion uh, in the legislature there. There were hearings yesterday. Uh, I, I want to go and actually, I, wa- I want to go and lis- listen to that. <laughs> that's that. That's that phone you promised. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, but and I mean, there, there's been a, a, a debate in, in uh, Maine over this. There, were, there was a big debate. And the governor vetoed some legislation uh, to um, allow uh, raw milk or broaden raw milk sales. But even with that, there was a, a lot of discussion afterwards. And um, I don't know. It just seems like it's uh, uh, it's, it's a little more constructive than uh, than it's been. So I'm, I'm may, may, maybe I'm just being overly optimistic, but uh, uh, I like to think that there is has been some positive movement. I think the, the Rami, uh, the establishment of Rami and the fact that they've been able to involve people from the um, public health community, at least to, to, to uh, a few people to some extent, um, is, is encouraging. And I think they want to involve more. And I, I, I hope that, um, you know, this kind of discussion uh, will, you know, let people know in the uh, Public health community that there is openness uh, to, to, to you know to dialogue. I mean, there there certainly there's some serious disagreements, but uh, uh, I think there's also a lot more receptivity than there might have been um, a few years ago to um, to the notion that hey, we we have to you know like you said, I think we all have to work together here, and uh, um, there are more and more farmers who are getting involved in this. They 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 need to do it. Uh, right, they need to produce a safe a safe product, and um, and, and the uh, uh, public health community and the um, uh, dairy community and and uh, everyone who, who cares about this should be uh, wanting the working toward the same goals. Well, that's a that's a we, so we've been talking for about an hour. Uh, ben and I chatted for about twenty minutes uh, prior to bringing you on the call. So I think on that very nice and positive and well reasoned yeah. note, David, if Ben, if it's okay with you, um, maybe we should uh, we should wrap this up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and David, I mean, really, uh, kudos to you for joining us today and for uh, responding to our uh, request to uh, to jump on and have this discussion because. Uh, you know, ultimately, I do think that just like there are good lettuce farmers and bad lettuce farmers and good cashew cheese makers and bad cashew cheese makers, um, you know, there, there's some continuum of, of um, those in the raw milk industry that, that can produce a, um, a reduced risk milk product compared to those who, who aren't paying attention. 
And, and if we can move that needle towards more folks that are doing that, um, you know, paying attention to, to the hazards and, and having systems in place to, to reduce risk, then, um, then I think we've, you know, that, that's, that's part of the, part of our goal, but, but thanks again for, um, for joining us and, and being able to, um, to, to continue this dialogue. Well, my pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thanks, David. Great. Thanks. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Uh, hey, <laughs> that was, that was pretty good, huh? That was great. <laughs> Aside from uh, you not being able to find your mute yeah. button on your mic and, and mic David's phone ringing. Yeah. I, I was mic. like, I was like, well, David's talking and that's not me coughing. Yeah. Ben, Ben, Ben knows better. I do. I do know better. And I can't, I keep like looking for it. I see call recorder. I see my Skype window. I got nothing. Like I have been hovering over it because I've been coughing most of the time. Then all of a sudden oh. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got this tickle in my throat. I can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of it. No. So I'm coughing twice. I'm glad I took the opportunity for when his uh, um, phone rang to, uh, <laughs> to cough some more. But I'm did good you, now. Did you find your mute button? No, yet? no, it's, it's gone. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah, I can't. Like I'm messing over stuff. I called Skype up and said, "Bring everything to the front. Show me my dial pad, contacts monitor, the whole thing. Nothing, nothing, nothing." Um, so anyway, uh, I, that was that was great. Yeah, that was good, and I was I was glad that it started off really nice, and but we kind of we kind of got into it a little bit, and I think yeah. that was good. So, yeah. and uh, and and he uh, um, great great job on his part because he brought up some um, some good points, and and we had that was that's a constructive discussion. I mean, yeah, the, we're coming at this from totally different angles, and that's the I, I think the the thing that that struck me. Right early on in his comments, when, when he was talking about, uh, you know, the first question he posed us on, should it be legal or not? That doesn't matter as much as how do you produce it safe in our world, right? That's a, that's a risk management question, man. Right. <laughs> right. And so I was like, you know, that's that's really interesting. We're we are um, we're not we're not counterparts and op- opposing views on the same issue. We have different issues. Like we have a diff- an entirely different angle uh, on this, and so that's part of sort of recognizing um, recognize that there isn't. You know, it's maybe it's because we're the ones on the on, on the side. Like, yeah, I, I have I have no vested. I mean, I guess yeah. I have a vested interest in food safety, but I I have a I don't want to say I don't care. Um, I don't care how it turns out, but it's not. It's not my livelihood. It's not just, my dietary choice. Yeah. But so just like lettuce, yeah, right. Like I mean, if or or another food. I mean, it's no, it's not, it's not special in that point. I hope that came across mm-hmm. that that I don't have a vested interest in any of these these industries that that we that we work with. Um, yeah, well, and I'll well. I'll d- defend uh, defend the sprout industry and talk about risk reduction as a guy that doesn't eat sprouts because he doesn't like them. Yeah, you know. So yeah, it was interesting that. Um, that, that was a, a, a conversation, it, it, like something went off in my head. I was like, Oh, we're, we don't, the, the, the raw milk advocacy world doesn't have, unless it's us, unless it's us and Michelle J. Russell <laughs> doesn't have someone who's like, Oh, we can do this safely. Yeah. Or, I, I, yeah. You know, I th- you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and here's the data, here's how you do it. Yeah. Here's the, it, it, there, there isn't, there isn't a, uh, it's not two opposing views of food microbiologists. Right. Which is makes for an interesting discussion. Right, right, because that's usually the debate we're having, right? Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Water quality. Well, we've got data here. We've got data there. Let's let's look at this. Oh, your data wasn't as good as ours. In this case, we don't have – there's not there's not data on the other side. Right, right. Um, and that's – I mean he and, and the, the folks that make the comments uh, on his blog on that post bring up that, that that's a good point. So they need someone who's doing that. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Still can't find that button. Huh? No, button's gone. <laughs> button's totally gone. Uh, well, that was good. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was. I, I you know, and, and this this is a call out to to our our listeners, which I know based on our data, uh, our podcast data, we're getting about um, in between two hundred and three hundred downloads of our podcast every uh, episode, which is surprising <laughs> since um, since I thought it was like twenty. How are you? How are you knowing that? Uh, it's it, if you go into uh, metrics, mm-hmm. the statistics on Squarespace, it oh. shows you audience size. Oh. And uh, it shows you how many there are. I, so it tells you downloads. It doesn't know. It's like uh, Linda Linda Harris, perfect example. Absolutely downloading count as an audience if she still is in fact downloading it. Doesn't listen to the show. Oh, so that's, thanks, I, that's, thanks for I, being an audience member. I, and thanks Linda. to and thanks to Squarespace for not sponsoring our podcast that has two hundred listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so in between 200 and 300. So anyway, this is a call out to, to those listeners. Um, th- th- that was a lot of, th- that was good. If there's stuff that, that someone wants to, to come on and, and talk to us uh, about something or, or have a discussion, send us a message. Yeah, or if you don't like what we have to say, write uh, write a obnoxious. <laughs> now, now I've yeah. been talking to David. I don't want to characterize no. him. Not, but write a, write a blog post telling us how we're wrong and we'll have you on. We'll have you on. That's what we're, that's what we're all about. This was good. Cool. Oh, and, well, and we should say we should say too to everybody. Um, you know, please do um, if you haven't. If you're listening to this, and you know, there, if there's 200 or 300 people downloading it, and even half of them listen, most of them have not left us a review in iTunes. No, there's right? only 18. So if you haven't left left us a review in iTunes, please please go leave us a review. Tell us what you think. Um, if if you like the if you like the show, leave us a good review in iTunes. If you don't like the show, tell us what we're getting wrong, and we'll have you on as a guest. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, truthfully, less work for us. <laughs> I don't know. I prepared. I prepared more for this episode than I usually do. So I wanted to. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I know, and it shows. <laughs> oh, Ben. So, that was good. That was good. Um, yeah. So please do uh, um, send us feedback, rate us, let us know what's going on. Um, as always, we're here for you. We're, well, actually, we would do it even if the people weren't listening. Right, but it's but it makes it better now that we know somebody's listening. Yeah, it does. Great. Well, Don, thanks again. Uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right, talk to you later, Ben. Bye bye. Bye.
I, like I brought my mic home and I feel so much better. Also, I couldn't get my boom to work or oh. to a fix. Hmm. You, you don't have a boom for your mic? I do. Oh, okay. So I couldn't get it to clamp on to the bottom of my um, my desk at home because it's too Oh, big. yeah. So I just took it off and then directed it at myself and it works. It's like it's got its own little stand that I didn't even think about. So I could just how leave do, the boom in my office. How does, how does it have a stand? Well, it's not really a stand, but um, the housing all right the shock mount yeah so the shock mount screws on to mm-hmm. the boom yeah i just unscrewed it from that oh t- turned it upside down that's a- because it's because i'm like an engineer right don um <laughs> yeah or you play one on tv or I something play one on tv yeah. um and it's uh it, it's at the right angle hmm. but so that's very I- precarious on that little no, because it bounces on the but it's three it's, it's oh tripod, tripod. got yeah, it yeah it's a yeah, yeah bouncing back you know they they make they make uh, uh, yeah. just uh, microphone stands yeah, I, know, yeah, <laughs> I could I, know I could I could buy you one if you no I could, I could buy <laughs> one. yeah because that makes it a whole lot you know I never thought about that that would make it a whole lot easier because then if I have to transport things back and forth it's just the mic yeah that's yeah that's and what the shock mount on. and then and I'm, leave I'm the never going to complain yeah. like oh I didn't have to like this is the first time I've tried it. Um, but usually I just go with my crappy headphones, um, the, the crappy ones that, that, uh, Dan Benjamin suggests. Well, the, the, well, the, the, the Dan Benjamin suggests for guests, for guests, yeah, my not guests. for hosts. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I got mail today, Don. So can I tell you about a <laughs> workflow thing in an after dark here? Sure. Um, Evernote, you've been using Evernote. Have we talked uh, about Evernote? We've talked about Evernote. I do not use it. I've never, it's doesn't, it doesn't fit in my workflow as they say. This is how it fits in with my workflow now. Um, it didn't – I mean I used it I, – I think I've told you I write blog posts in it. But now I'm doing everything in it because if you attach a PDF or take a picture of, say, a whiteboard and pay the 25 or $40 a year, whatever it is, for the premium upgrade, it makes it uh, full-text search. Cool. Yeah. So now I go to a meeting yesterday. And I get they give me some sort of paper, and I just take a picture of it on my phone, upload it into Evernote, searchable. So it reads your handwriting? Yeah. Let me rephrase that. It reads your handwriting? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And like I had to um, make sure that I knew I was going to take a picture of it, so I made it fairly clear. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it read it. Um, the other thing it does is it does – like I've just been taking pictures of my receipts and throwing them into Evernote and because my um, – the university folks don't care if I give it to them. They want it scanned anyway. So now I don't have to worry about keeping paper receipts. Yeah, you know that the Rutgers requires a paper receipt. Um, almost everybody I else else I work with, uh, a scanned receipt is okay. And I have very much gotten into the habit of just like taking pictures with my phone and emailing it to myself. But yeah, that maybe that. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, that that I don't know. I mean, uh, and it makes it searchable. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it goes. So it's not just a picture. It's now an attachment to a note. Right, I can say what it was, who it was for, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it syncs between. You know, I've got it on my iPad and my phone and um, in my computer. So anyway, the mail that I got, um, I've also been investigating um, better use of whiteboard technology. And I just bought a, I don't know, $75 pen from Evernote to use like a stylus that um, then use, makes Evernote a whiteboard that I can project on my computer. Like I can mirror it. I'm sure other people know how to do this. But Wait, no, what? 
Okay, so so I've got my 27-inch, you know, screen, mm-hmm. and I can mirror my there, – uh, there's a function in um, Evernote mm-hmm. or a helper app maybe that allows me to mirror that – what's on my iPad to my 27-inch oh, monitor. okay, yep. And so I can use it. I can use it as a whiteboard, and then it takes it and does a – you know, uh, catalogs it, and I don't have to worry about what I wrote. Like, I don't have to write down any notes after I put it up there when I draw some sort of a diagram. Oh, it just automatically goes to Evernote. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So it's a big day. It's a big day for me. <laughs> that's good after dark. Workflow. It, that's that's our model, right? What's Pop that? Pop culture in the follow-up, workflow in the after dark. Sure. <laughs> that's exactly what our model is. That's our model. Ah. Uh, Hey, that was that was fun. Indeed, very fun. And and speaking of fun, you're enjoying the snow. Yes. So you had a snowball fight this morning, huh? Had a snowball fight this morning. Um, did some sledding. Oh, awesome! Uh, yeah, it was really good. We uh, turns out we have the uh, neighborhood's best sled. Oh. That was purchased in Canada. It has two runners. As oh, come on, it's a Canadian sled. Yeah. yeah I mean, seriously, like like a Canadian sled versus a North Carolinian sled. I mean, there's just matters. no contest. Matters. <laughs> um, so we so we had that. Um, had a nice uh, nice time outside. Uh, I think the boys will be off from school for another five days. <laughs> Because there's four inches of snow. Because there's four inches of snow, and and there's no infrastructure, and and it's um, gonna it's gonna be cold for four. It's days. gonna be cold. It's not gonna melt. Oh, so uh, glory days. It'll be there'll be a bunch of ice tomorrow morning. Um, fortunately, they only go to school third. Like they missed yesterday because it was going to snow. Then it didn't snow uh, until later. <laughs> they missed today because it did snow, and tomorrow because there will be ice. Right. And hopefully it'll. It's supposed to be like seventy two or something on Sunday. Oh wow. There's maybe what it was forecast. Maybe it's less now, but um, so yeah. And then I, hey, I'm going to see our, our good friend Kathy Cutter next week. Oh, awesome! Yeah, I'm going to Penn State. Give a talk. Oh, very good. You, you'll be right next door. I will. That's, hey, yeah. buy some raw milk while you're there. I, you know what, I might. And um, if you happen to be passing through uh, on 81 at our favorite Starbucks, <laughs> where where uh, where your wife is sick, yes, yeah, oh, only in your car though. Only in my car. Yeah. Well, I'll be in the state. I won't be anywhere near that. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I I won't be in the state, and I won't be anywhere near State uh-huh. College. So, it's not. Uh, it's right next door, state wise. But State College is a, a long, and you can't really get there from here because of mountains. So. It takes a long time to drive to State College. I am, it's almost faster if I drive to North Carolina to see you. <laughs> it, you know what? It takes a long time to fly to State College. <laughs> oh, you, yeah, because you don't have a direct flight, right? No, no. So we were fly to like, Philly or uh, Dulles. Dulles, and mm-hmm. uh, it's like uh, for whatever reason, the times I don't, I don't fly. We don't have a lot of United flights out of RDU, and only United flies into, or I, I got in Central and I did flies into. Um, State College, so I'm flying. So I got a, I got like a three hour layover at Dulles. <laughs> so I, sorry, I sent uh, that that text message I sent to you about no matter what you do, you can't produce a safe milk unless there's a kill step. Yeah, I for some reason mistakenly texted that to Bats first. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he like, just – Yeah, so real-time follow-up. He just texted me back, quote, so I says to the guy, you can take this salve and rub it wherever you want. It should make the burning go away. And then he said, whoops, that wasn't meant for you. <laughs> oh, bats. Oh. oh, bats. No matter what you can do, you cannot produce a safe milk unless there's a kill stop. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, on that note, Don. On, the, on that no- which which I have to say, um, that is not that does not re- reflect the views of Food Safety Talk, not nor of Dr. Schaffner, nor Dr. Chapman. That is the, uh, a a co- the comment from an anonymous colleague of ours. Which I'm sure you couldn't find if you Googled it, um, and it's and and it just reflects the view of most of the food safety community regarding raw milk. Yep, and that that's why it might be hard to work with folks yep. on both sides. But we made an effort, and actually, yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, I, I think it, this was really good, and hopefully, we'll have future opportunities for constructive dialogue. Uh, with uh, raw milk advocate folks, because because I think it, we really did. Um, I mean, it, it was good. It, I think it was good podcast, but I think it was also good, like constructive discussion. Yeah, good for the heart. <laughs> yes, <laughs> gets the blood pumping. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. Good brain power today. Um, hey, I know this is after dark, and you probably have to to run somewhere, but. Nah, I got nothing. I'm a tenured professor. Hey, I'm almost a tenured professor. I tried to use that on dating the other day. <laughs> no, no. But, but please, word of advice does not work with spouses. No, it doesn't at all. No, it does not work at all with spouses. I also said something like, I'm going to wear a hoodie to school. <laughs> what are they going to do? I'm almost a tenured professor. And she goes, yeah, almost. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're right. Good point. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I spent... Three days last week visioning. <laughs> oh, God. Did you take some peyote by accident? Yeah, I wish. That, you know what? That would have made it work. would have made it better. Um, and then uh, yesterday I did um, – okay. So so three days visioning for extension. And the process – I mean it's a big question. You know, I, I mentioned in emails to you and I think we talked about it on the podcast about – uh, this is how we need to fix extension. And your comment was, I gave up on that a long time ago. Uh, it was because it's so complex. Let the record show that anybody from Rutgers who's listening to it, I completely devout ever disavow ever having said that. Right, right. Whatever. whatever we can edit that out. <laughs> um, but uh, so we spent three days like going through this facilitated thing and, and uh, it, it was painful, but there were a couple of pieces of it that actually seemed to work. Like, I don't know, like, like the ideas it gave you time, it gave me time to work with others, to come up with ideas because there is a, a, I think consensus within the, the group that something needs to be done, that, that it, it needs fixing and it's, and it's a resource issue for us and, and it's a structure issue. But, but anyway, it was some, some stuff was, was good. So one of the suggestions that, that my group made, um, was, and putting that money into a pool and hiring state level people that would run information centers 24/7 twitter social media but but take some of the very reactive questions that that they're really just coming in as a question to the county center and put it onto a centralized location um and then run that like just run with that they could they could make that or we could make that like a national service um but so I don't know. It got it was it was well. Some of it was well well received. Uh, I am optimistic because this is my my first uh, 
first ride at the circus. Is that the right cliche? First, <laughs> first trip around the sun. <laughs> this is your first rodeo, I think, is what Whatever, you're looking for. Yeah. It's the first time I'm a circus clown. <laughs> <laughs> first time shot out of a cannon. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I'm optimistic that something might might happen, but but you know because this is the time. Like, uh, what was it? The Plan Nine from Outer Space, the first eight that didn't work, but the Plan Nine is going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what I'm. I'm on. I'm not Plan Nine. That's what it is. So, uh, anyway, cool. Um, and then yesterday we had a big ideas session with the college with Rich Linton with Dean Rich. Excellent. It was, yeah, it was. That was actually talk, cool. talk about your big ideas, man. Yeah. It was that was all right. It was it, it, it mainly because there are a bunch of people in my college who I've never ever seen or never ever met, mm. and we were all put at different tables and um, got to do. It was more about collaboration as opposed to coming up with a big idea. Um, and it, we all felt that it was a little bit forced, but it was kind of nice. It made us think we should probably have more of this kind of stuff where we figure out who else works here and wh- that we have the same interests and maybe it doesn't need to be formal, but, um, that it's probably not a bad idea to step out of the day to day to do some of that stuff. Yeah. Anytime you can meet <clears throat> interesting people that you might want to work with in the future, I think that's a good thing. And so much the better if they're actually at your university and on your campus and, it would be easy to do. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of cool. Um, so yeah. all right, that's all. That's really all that's going on in my life. I have four blog posts that I want to write today. Too. <laughs> okay, well let me uh, let me not keep you from that. Yeah, cool. Um, I I always and I'm look at me. I'm like hanging on. I'm like a like don't leave me, Don. <laughs> like I said, I got I got tenure. I got nothing else to do. I do have to review a manuscript, but it's already overdue. So they, they sent me one reminder. So that's it's that's not my... overdue yet. Then <laughs> you haven't had the threatening uh, one of if if we don't hear back from you soon, we're just going to go with the other two reviewers. Uh, no, no. But this is actually, I guess, a good it's a good paper actually from uh, from our friends at the FDA. So oh, okay. um, they did they did some good work. So I need to give them the pat on the back and a few minor corrections. So. Cool. And I, as you can tell, I still haven't found my microphone button, so I'm coughing up a storm. Uh, are you uh, sick? No, I got some. I, I have like a really bad allergy to dust. Oh and yeah. When when our heat's running all. Oh the time, yeah, yeah. It's just cycling. Like a, it's just this little tickle in the back of my throat, and I can wake up, you know, really dry and it, and, and have but you, I, yeah, no, I don't feel bad. I just have, have tickle. Have you have you got thinking thought about getting a room humidifier? Because that's a one thing that helps us is in the wintertime, we just bust out the room humidifier and then put that That's in the good. bedroom. That's a good idea. No, yeah. I, haven't, I, haven't thought, I haven't thought that far. I started taking some, like, allergy pills, and then they make me dream crazy dreams and mm. wake up groggy. So I'm mm-hmm. trying to avoid that. Yeah, humidifier might be a better choice. <laughs> might be less invasive. <laughs> yes. I had, a, <laughs> I had a dream last week that I was on a boat for... <laughs> For like uh, with with my whole family, like we were sailing to Japan. <laughs> of course, as you do. Yeah. So, um, so that was cool, and not and not leaving like Korea, like sailing from the U.S. <laughs> yeah, because that's pretty much the best way to get to Japan. Exactly from North Carolina. You're le- not not from not from California, but from North Carolina. Right. Right. You're gonna yeah. sail around the Horn. Yeah. We'll go uh, find the Northwest Passage. Oh, speaking of bo- speaking of boats. <clears throat> We've been watching this thing. Uh, well, Kristen's been watching this thing, and I've been 
sitting on the couch while she watches it. It's a little, it's a little, a little gruesome. But basically, have you heard of this guy uh, Shackleton? No. Oh, it's Explorer Shackleton <clears throat> stranded on the South Pole and for two years. And anyway, we can. Is this like real? Or yeah, he's a real guy. Like the guy's like, stranded there now. No, 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 no. no. Oh, this okay. is back in the day. But <clears throat> to. To rescue his men, he took a small group of men with him on a boat on this really treacherous path to this island where there was a, you know, some sort of a civilization. And a couple of these modern day explorer, wacky explorer types decided to reproduce the journey (laughs) um, with the same equipment and the same like quality of clothing and the same boat and it's just like it's just it's horrible it's just like these have they started eating each other yet no they made it they made it to the island though but with some they have like this support boat that's with them to keep them from doing anything you know getting into really serious trouble um they made it to the island and now they have to walk across this mountain range and it's just like oh it's uh yeah it's it's gruesome Makes me feel glad that I have a <laughs> have a fairly simple job that involves an office in my house and, yes. and sometimes on campus. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I can, I, yeah. I just just need to type for a living. Type yeah, and yeah. think. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my finger hurts because I've been typing too much. <laughs> oh, I think I'm think I'm getting arth- I seriously, I'm getting arthritis in my finger. It's really I'm too young for that. But yeah. I don't know. I got to go for my checkup later. This Do month. you? Um, I back in grad school, I had some. Um, repetitive stress stuff for my mouse hand hmm. that, but, but which was alleviated by like a nice mouse gel thing and, right. and a better ergonomic mouse. Right. Um, but, uh, I'll, I'll probably, yeah, you know, it's probably, probably our whole, our whole generations mm. with it <laughs> from typing. All right. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah. We've, we've blabbed enough. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll right. edit all this out. Yeah. No one will listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> no one will listen to this garbage. <laughs> Uh, cool. All right. Well, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All or, right. Yeah, I guess I, yeah. I don't want to see you. And then I'll see you. I'll see you at the end of the month. Will I? Will, will well, we? At the end of next month. Oh, in, 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 in beautiful San Diego. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. I can't so wait to go to San like Diego. To, can, can we get, can we eat dinner the, the Monday night? Yes. I'm not, I'm not in until late on Sunday night. Like I think it's 10, <clears> 10 30. Yes. Unless uh, you have something else going no, on. No, well, Kristen's going to be with me, but yeah, that would be I would fine. like to eat dinner with Kristen too. <laughs> okay, good. In um, fact, I might just have dinner with Kristen. You're on your own. <laughs> We're friends on Facebook. I could set that up. Sure, absolutely. Um, so Monday night? Yeah, whatever. The 24th, isn't yeah. it? Or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'll write that down. Yeah. Because, I, yeah, I leave Tuesday morning. Yep. Yeah, we, we fly back out on Tuesday as well. So Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I'll talk to you in a, in a couple of weeks. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.